Dave Wedge, what's going on, my friend? Thanks for coming on. Happy to do it, man. How are you? Listen, such an accomplished author, obviously the Boston Strong about the Boston Marathon bombing, also about the Ice Bucket Challenge, even tackled Whitey Bulger. Dave, I'm seeing a pattern here. Are you a Boston dude? I am. Yes, I am. I, I know you're a Yankees fan, so we'll <laughs> have to just, you know, it's not, baseball's not even worth talking about right now, but, you know, respect, respect to the, I'm a Boston <laughs> guy that respects the Yankees. As a Boston guy, were you celebrating or cringing two weeks ago with Tom Brady? Uh, I was, well, we wrote the book about Tom Brady. So, you know, we know Tom a little bit and I personally, I'm happy for the guy. Um, you know, look, he, we, we, I mean, our book, the, you know, we re-released that book. It's called 12 for your, uh, listeners out there. Um, and the original book is about deflate gate and that Super Bowl, the 28 to three comeback, but we re-released it in paperback, uh, back in September. And we added in three chapters with all new information about how the divorce ended there in new England with, with Bill Belichick and how he ended up in Tampa. So if you read that, you know, we kind of laid it all out and explained why, you know, Brady kind of, um, you know, I don't want to say he got screwed here, but he definitely did not leave on great terms with uh, with Belichick. Um, you know, they shorted him on the money, and that's the ultimate reason why he really left, in addition to, I think, just he perceived disrespect over the years. So it was time for Tom to do something different. So I kind of look at it that way, like, you know what? Great 20 years, unprecedented run. As a Pats fan, I loved it, but I was happy to see him go on and have success somewhere else. Good for him. One Pats question. Who's going to quarterback for you guys next year? You guys going to go rookie, free agent? What, what's the pulse up there with that? Uh, I, no one knows, man. I mean, right now it's Cam Newton still, but, you know, people are talking about Ryan Fitzpatrick or something like that, and then, you know, they'll get some, like, fill-in guy, veteran for a year or two and, and you know, draft somebody or develop someone. Um, but you know, this is a situation New England hasn't been in in uh, almost 30 years. I mean, we we had Blue Drew Bledsoe from 1993 until 2000, and then Brady ever since. You know, last year we got a good look at what you know the young kids. I'm 50 years old, man, so I remember Steve Grogan and Tony Eason and Hugh <laughs> Millen and Scott Seacrest. I remember these guys where you know we were eight and eight, seven and nine, two and whatever every year. You know, and um, young kids are now getting a look at what it means to not have a real quarterback. And, you know, everyone can sit around debating Belichick or Brady, but it's a quarterback league always has been the best teams with the always have the best quarterback. It's just always the way it is. So we'll see. Before we talk about your awesome book, I just finished. I want a little background on you. I love having authors on, like I said, Boston guy, obviously went to Boston college. Was it always writing and journalism for you? Was that always the end game? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I, I was as a little kid, I always wanted to write books or movies. That was always like kind of my dream. And I didn't really know how to get there. Um, when I, I went to Boston College, I started off as a, a marketing and um, business major. And I started getting my math grades. And I was like, uh, Dad, this ain't working out. I, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I'm in like applied calculus and I'm, you know, not getting the grades I'm getting in, you know, creative writing, you know, and, and uh, in my English courses. So I switched to English, uh, started writing for the, the newspaper there at, at BC, the Heights. And then when I came out of school, I started writing for local newspapers. And that kind of put me on the path to telling stories. And since then, you know, I've just been doing it ever since. I, I worked in media for 25 years and now I'm writing full time and, you know, developing movies and all that stuff. So it's, it's been a lot of fun, um, a lot of hard work, a lot of, a lot of shitty late night pizza and crappy coffee, you know. 
Um, but I, I loved all my time in the newsrooms and I, you know, I'm, I'm really happy about where I am with things. I'm having a lot of fun. Any authors or writers you really looked up to coming up? Oh man, putting me on the spot. My, first of all, my brain is mush cause I'm 50, <laughs> but you know, I, am a big, I'm a big biography guy. Like I'm, I'm reading a great book right now called Altamont. Um, it's by a guy named, uh, Levin is the last name. I think it's Joey Levin, I believe. Um, but it's it's about it's like a, a a new fresh look at Altamont, the concert at the Speedway where the Hell's Angels killed a couple people doing security for the Rolling Stones. That that's a great book. Um, you know, I, I just read Debbie Harry's book from Blondie, which is a great read. I, I just read a biography about Sylvester, the '70s disco star, which was phenomenal. So I read a lot of nonfiction, a lot of rock, rock bios, things like that. And, um, but, you know, as far as like authors, uh, you know, I don't really follow any specific authors. I kind of look for for something that kind of grabs me. You know, I, I did always love someone like Alice Walker, mm-hmm. you know, Jay California Cooper, some of those writers. You know, I love those those kind of stories when I was younger. But these days I'm all about the nonfiction. I'm really glad you brought up uh, music because according to your Wikipedia, obviously the internet never lies, Dave. So everything about the on the internet about you is true. You've interviewed some of the legends of music: Ozzy, Gene Simmons, Marilyn Manson, Biggie. Always loved music, so it was always music and sports for you. Yeah, so you know, I was always a, a, a news reporter because that's where the jobs were, and there wasn't really a job to you know cover music like I wanted to. You know, I, I did so I did a lot of freelancing on the side. But, you know, I had kids and I had to pay bills, so my news uh, job paid the bills. But uh, I wrote, covered music for the Boston Herald for 15 years. I wrote for Revolver. I wrote for a site called Lamb Goat. I've written for all sorts of different publications over the years. And I'm just a huge music guy overall. And, um, you know, it, the Herald gave me a lot of opportunities to do some big interviews. All the people you just mentioned, I, I interviewed most of them for the Herald. And, um, you know, got to cover a lot of cool shows over the years. And uh, it's, yeah, it's just always something I've loved. And, and now as, as I'm writing books and, you know, Casey and I, launched, my, my co-author, Casey Sherman, we're launching a podcast and we're doing some true, you know, true crime stuff. And we may get into some of these kind of true crime, you know, rock and roll stories that have I've, I've been uh, part of covering over the years. So it's always been a main interest of mine. More, more, more music than in sports, but I have covered a good amount of sports as well. Dream interview musician, who would it be? Throughout time, anyone? Well, honestly, Gene Simmons was one of them. Um, you know, Biggie Smalls I interviewed, but it was early in his career and it was before his mythology had really even started. So I wish I could go back and interview him again now. You know, now knowing all that I know about Biggie. Um, Ozzy was a big one, obviously, like you mentioned. Lemmy. Um I don't know. I mean, I guess I'd always loved. I'd love. I've, I've interviewed some a lot of people that have run for president and uh, folks like that, and I've been at press conferences, but I've never done a long sit down with a president. I'd love to sit down with a president at some point. So I just finished your book, The Last Days of John Lennon, and then I looked you up and I read two of your other books. I read Boston Strong, and uh, I read the Whitey Bulger book. So you're slowly becoming one of my favorite authors, bro. I just wanted to let you know. That's nice of you, man. I appreciate that. You, you know, that that's you and my dad are the only ones that have read all three of those, I think. No, no. We, 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 Casey and I have built kind of a brand, and I think people know what they get with our stories. You know, they know that they're going to get the truth, first of all, accurate, and it's going to be a page turner. You know, we try to write in a way that 
we want every page to have something that really is interesting or makes you feel something. And that that's how we try to write. So this book, The Last Days of John Lennon, you teamed up obviously with your boy Casey Sherman, who you, you've written your other books with. Then the legend James Patterson comes on. One, was it intimidating? And two, how'd that come about with the third party? So James Patterson is starting to do, well, he's he's been doing a, a good amount of true crime in recent years. He did the book on Jeffrey Epstein. He did the Aaron Hernandez book. And, um, you know, our agent and his agent just kind of got together. And, you know, our agent knew that he was looking for true crime guys to partner up with. And we had a couple calls with him. We had a few ideas and we kicked him around and we landed on the John Lennon story. And it was a great partnership. Uh, Patterson is obviously the best in the game. He's, um, you know, the number one selling off author in the world for a reason. And it was amazing to work with him. You know, the guy's a maestro. And, um, you know, Casey and I had a lot of fun writing this book. We got to, you know, go down to New York, re-interview everybody that we could find that was alive, that was involved in the case from the uh, original investigating officers to uh, Mark David Chapman's lawyers, to the judge and the prosecutor. And, you know, right down to the doctor who actually tried to save John Lennon's life and held John Lennon's dying heart in his hands. We, we spoke to these people, pulled all those old court records and kind of worked with Patterson on the narrative. And, you know, we couldn't be prouder of that book. Uh, when I've walked this on and, you know, you and Casey worked together, was it hard having the third person you guys face any hurdles doing or not really? Um, not really. No. I mean, if it was a third person that, you know, we didn't know maybe, but he's James Patterson. So you, you kind of trust the process there. So, <laughs> um, you know, we, we, there, there was, it was honestly seamless, you know, he was very open and easy to deal with. He, you know, whenever we would submit sections and chapters, he, he was quick with the feedback and was like, I really like this guy's let's change this. You know, he was, He's, there's no mystery with him. You know, he just knows how to tell a great story. And um, honestly, like, you know, huge, huge learning experience for me. And I'm very grateful for it. And it's made me a better storyteller, I think. And I'm, I'm going to take these, you know, lessons I learned from the master forward from here and hopefully write a bunch of more great books that people will love. Writing a book and having a release date of like December 7th, obviously there was a reason for that. Did it hurt promotion because of COVID and everything and you weren't physically out there to be able to promote the book as much as you wanted? Yeah, that's been a little difficult because Casey and I put out two books in 2020. It was, you know, the Whitey book came out at Memorial Day and then John Lennon came out at uh, uh, right, right before Christmas. And normally we would have events, you know, launch events, and then we would do in-store signings and all that. The, I think it hurt the Whitey book more than um, than the John Lennon book because, you know, the Whitey one, the bookstores weren't even opened last uh, summer. They were all closed um, in, you know, April, May, June, July, really. They didn't start opening till August, September. So we lost those first three months of in-store kind of foot traffic. Um, and obviously, like I said, the signing events, those are huge events for authors where we sit down and we get to meet our, you know, people that buy the books and fans or whatever and, sign them and talk to them and you know those those events sell a lot of books and the social media involved so yeah it was definitely definitely hurt um but with the lennon one uh you know things were more open now and, and obviously you know he's, again he's james patterson so um people are automatically buying his books so um i'm glad that the bookstores are back open i hope that you know things start to continue to get better so that we can get back out and do some in-person events we're not quite there yet I know you're a huge music guy, so tackling the Beatles is the same breath as tackling Babe Ruth. It's iconic on a level that 
will probably will never be reached again. They are music. How did one the idea come about to write a book about Lennon's last day? And writing a book at that, was it intimidating? Like, all right, I'm writing a book about the Beatles, which there's been so much written about. Was that intimidating? And how did it come about? Yeah, it was a little bit at first, but then you just get into your, you know, you get into your um, your true crime investigative mode. And I just looked at it like a, a case that I was investigating, which I've done, you know, thousands of times in my life. And Casey and I, you know, we did it with the Boston Marathon. We, we did it with Deflategate. We did it with Whitey Bulger. We just dig into these cases and we... We dig and dig and dig and, you know, all the archives and public records and interviews. And we just, you know, we really get into these stories and try to find those little nuggets that nobody maybe knew about and, and tell the story from our perspective and through our lens. And I think that's that's really what we did. And, and the way the idea came about was just that, really. We were like, all right, what are some huge iconic stories that maybe people need a fresh look at? You know, and we thought about it, went back and forth. We had some other ideas and. We said, you know what? It's the 40th anniversary of John Lennon. It's really the, the the first crime, you know, rock and roll murder that really kind of shocked our generation, you know, Generation X and, and subsequent generations. And then we thought about, you know, millennials where they were too young. They didn't remember John Lennon. Um, Casey and I were alive. And I remember when, you know, I remember hearing it on that Patriots game on Monday Night Football, you know, again, worlds colliding. Um, watching Monday Night Football, 10 years old, and I heard that from Howard Cosell that John Lennon had been murdered. So it was a landmark moment in my life. And uh, lastly, I think that there's a lot of themes from the John Lennon case that still resonate today. You know, gun control, mental illness, obsession with celebrity, um, all these things still are, are, are big parts of our, uh, our culture. And, you know, th those are themes that, that never go away. I'm the furthest thing from a music fan. There's times I'll go, and I mean this, maybe a month or two without hearing a song, and that's not a joke. Like I just don't listen to music, <laughs> and I absolutely love this book, which so uh, shows how awesome it is. Was it difficult to juggle it, uh, juggle it by not making it completely music centric? Was that something on your mind? <clears throat> no, because uh, you know I didn't want to write a music book. You know, there's been plenty of those written about John Lennon by people that are better students of music than I am. I mean, I know my music, but. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to break down, you know, the recording of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds like some, you know, producer or some music nerd could. But I can break down the criminal case and the personalities and and kind of tell the story of who these people were and how their lives collided on December 8th, uh, 1980. You know, and that's what we did. That's what I do with all my stories. I try to get into that, you know, mindset and, you know, tell, I took a lot of psychology courses over the years. So I try to put people in that moment and help them understand how this happened and why you really humanized and i hate when that, that word's overused john lennon because it wasn't just praise you didn't just kiss his ass the whole time you talked about his success obviously but you talked about his failures his shortcomings yep. his insecurities there are some diehard beatles fans out there on both spectrums what has the reaction been to this book uh the reaction's been great i mean you know i think everybody agrees that you know no one's a perfect human and um, you know, John Lennon would, if he were alive today, would be the first one to probably talk about the mistakes of his past and the sins of his past. I mean, he'd be, I think, 80 years old now. And, uh, you know, he certainly did not live a perfect life, but he brought a perfect message to the world. And it's a message that I think uh, people need to hear now as much as ever, you know, give peace a chance, you know, love your brother. You know, those things are 
lost kind of messages today and they seem corny to some people, but sometimes it's better to just try to be kind, you know? And, and I think John Lennon, uh, again, he, you know, he made a lot of mistakes. He clearly was not great to his wife and he was not great to other people in his life. And he's talked about that, but I think he, the, 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 the real tragedy, I think of what happened with John Lennon was he was just 40 years old. He was just emerging from a seclusion period in his life where he was getting back in touch with who he was as a man. And he was realizing what's important in life. And that was his kids and, and his wife. And I think he was ready to come out of that and deliver his second act. And that second act, I think, would have been amazing. And that's really what Mark David Chapman robbed the world of is what John Lennon would have become in the next 30 or 40 years. It's so incredible that he's and obviously it was Chapman's I guess goal but he's forever linked like there's people my cousin's 12 years old knows Mark David Chapman it's so incredible his name still resonates and it's forever will be linked with Lennon it's sad and it bothers me but what type of guy was he by doing all that research about him well he was a he was a you know he had mental illness he was diagnosed I mean when we were digging into these records there was you know 10 different psychiatric evaluations that the guy went through and they all came through with different diagnoses you know, he was diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic, bipolar, um, you know, severe anxiety, personality disorder, you name it. The guy was diagnosed with it. Um, but ultimately, he was, I think, a, a loner and he was a lost soul. He was confused. Remember, he was only 25 years old. He wasn't a man. He was a young kid. He went through a lot of hard times when he was young. He went through drugs. He went through abandonment. There was some abuse in his past. Um you know, and, and he was, you know, he's a Jesus freak and he, he was just looking for something to grab onto um, in his life. And he settled on the obsession of John Lennon, sadly. Um, he did, if you know, if you remember from the book, he had a long list of other celebrities that he had considered killing. Uh, but he kept coming back to John Lennon for various reasons. And we, you know, we kind of go through those in the book. But, um, you know, really, he was just a, a, a mentally ill person who had access to guns. And no one saw the signs until it was too late. You think, you know, when something happens like a big tragedy like this, you not, this might come out wrong. You wish it would happen now because this would bring more attention to the gun control thing. Like, how did a guy like this get a gun? Because this is 40 years ago. Now to bring it up, it's like, all right, bro, it's 40 years ago. Chill. But I think if something like this happened now to a monster musician like Lennon who changed the world, do you think it would have been, it would put it on the forefront more? Yeah, I think, you know, it, we talk about in the book that one of the most amazing things that that I learned from researching and writing this book, and I missed this over the years, was that Mark David Chapman actually brought the gun in his luggage through the airport twice, or more than twice. He brought it to New York, brought it back, and brought it back to New York again. So, you know, just the thought of putting a piece of gun in your luggage in 2021 is a completely foreign concept, but back then... I mean, people were smoking on planes. It was a different world, you know. And, um, you know, again, millennials, they don't even remember any of this. But I do remember I was on smoking flights when I was a little kid. I remember that. You know, this guy traveled with guns. So um, I think this gun control issue is something that continues in our society. I mean, Mark David Chapman, um, the way he bought his guns back in 1980, he could still do today. There was There's mm-hmm, nothing mm-hmm. that would have prevented him today from doing the same exact thing except transporting it. That's the only thing. But he could buy the gun at a gun shop the way he did. Um, and he got the ammunition uh, from a friend. 
And the same thing could happen. And even more so, he could go to gun shows and buy them totally legally on his own. Uh, there was nothing in his past preventing him from buying weapons, um, even though he did have a suicide attempt and he had some mental illness issues. There's nothing that would have triggered any sort of uh, uh, obstacle to him obtaining weapons. I know Chapman's up for parole again. I think next year, his 12th or 13th time. Do you think he's ever getting out? I don't. Um, I think that he, you know, he's been his own worst enemy. I mean, and, and again, we pulled all those parole records and read through those transcripts. And there was a funny evolution that, that has gone on with Mark David Chapman, where in the beginning he was much, and it makes total sense because he was, he was young, but he was much more obstinate and belligerent and kind of defiant in, in the earlier parole hearings. And he's gotten much more contrite over the years and, and almost apologetic now. And, you know, he's apologized to Yoko in his last couple of um, hearings. And he's, you know, he's talked about finding God and, you know, he hasn't really asked to be released directly. He's just said, you know, if this is my fate, then this is my purpose. I've, I've done horrible things and I, I don't deserve freedom. He's said things like that, but I think, you know, ultimately his goal is to prove that he's a model citizen so that he can one day get out. His wife still supports him. He's still married to her. Um, they have some sort of ministry that they do like outreach to other prisoners and, he is active in that sort of stuff, which, frankly, is a good thing if he can help other young prisoners to see, you know, the air of their ways and find ways to be better people. I'm OK with that. But I certainly don't think the guy ever deserves any freedom. I mean, he he was he was not a child. He was a man and he made a plan and he carried through with it. He had a million chances to stop it. Even that day when he was at um, at the Dakota he saw John Lennon in the, in the afternoon, got his record signed. John Lennon left and for the entire day, went to the studio. Mark David Chapman waited there for him to come back all day long until the night. He had all that time, hours and hours and hours, to reconsider what he was going to do and turn tail and not do it. And he went through with it. Going back, I know you're a big researcher. You're digging in. Did you come away with a new appreciation of Lennon and the Beatles or was it like uh, dwindled a little bit? No, I, I've, I mean, I've, I was a Beatles nerd growing up as a kid. I mean, they were the first band that I became obsessed with. And I had, you know, frankly, you know, I had the Let It Be poster on my wall. I had that famous picture of John Lennon at the white piano. I had a poster of that on my wall as a little kid. And I read all John Lennon's books when I was probably, you know, in my early tween and teen years. You know, he wrote some, uh, some short story books. A Spaniard in the Works was one, and another one was... Um, skywriting by word of mouth and I, I you know I just inhaled everything I could about the Beatles and um, I still love them today I mean I've, I listen to the Beatles with my son now my son's seven and sometimes at bedtime we'll play Beatles music because it's you know it's it's beautiful music but um, you know I, I, I'm proud of being able to be a part of telling the story for a new generation and I hope that um, people realize the magnitude of what was lost and that they find their own uh, way to connect with the music and, and learn about what the Beatles were about. Well, you mentioned the storytelling. You told the story to me because, like I said, I can tell you every sports statistic. I'm an obsessive reader. I know nothing about music. So this book was all new to me. While you're writing That's the book, great. yeah, while you're writing the book, did you figure out, not figure out, did you find anything out new that kind of blew your mind that you didn't know? Um, yes. I knew a lot of it, but, you know, like but there was more nuance in there and new details that, that, you know, like like I said, I focused mostly on the crime side of the story. So 
Um, a lot of the music stuff, I, I kind of knew a lot of that, but you know, there was some stuff there about how they got together when they were so young and, 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 you know, John Lennon and Paul McCartney's relationship. And, and certainly one thing that was new that we found, uh, that Casey and I uncovered was this plot by the terrorists that, um, they, they were threatening to kidnap, uh, John and Yoko and their son. Um, and that was one of the reasons why John Lennon went into seclusion, um, and, and obviously a lot of the stuff that I learned about Mark David Chapman and his obsession and, and the lengths he went to, um, you know, find a way to get to John Lennon. A lot of that stuff was new to me as well. Today, John Lennon is considered a hero. Like I said, iconic. How would Lennon be perceived today? And what I mean by that is he'd be at the forefront of all these protests and these movements going on with the nation so divided right now. Do you think it would have hurt his market? I don't think he would have cared about his legacy, but do you think it would have hurt his marketability? I don't know. It's a good, you know, I think about that sometimes, you know, would, would he have been the kind of guy that would be canceled, you know, because John Lennon did have some misogyny in his past, you know, and he had some accusations of abuse. So, you know, you're seeing it with people like Eric Clapton, you know, Eric Clapton's been criticized for some things he said, you know, really racist stuff that he said on stage during concerts back in the old days in the seventies. And, um, I, you know, I don't think John Lennon certainly didn't have racism in his past, but there was some misogyny. So, he could have had some issues there. I also wonder politically where he would have fallen on the spectrum with all this stuff that's going on today, you know, because there's a lot of people that were um, really radical, progressive leftists back in the 60s and 70s who are now on the other side. And I don't, you know, it would have broken my heart to see John Lennon become, <laughs> uh, you know, a Trumper. And I don't think he would have. I think but I do think that John Lennon might have been one of these people that might have been anti-everything. He might have been anti-government and anti-establishment and thought that both sides were a disaster. Mm-hmm. He could have been in that place. But I, we'll never know. you know. And, and frankly, like I said, we could use John Lennon's voice right now, that voice of, of kind of love your brother. You know, That's the message that's not – no one's delivering that message. Everyone's trying to be divisive right now. No one's saying, like, let's take a step back and think about what's best for humanity. There's not a lot of people doing that right now. Didn't you sell the rights to this book to be a movie? Yeah, so uh, so that that's you know Patterson is is driving the bus on that, but we're a part of it, obviously. And um, yeah, we've got some some stuff in the works. We're hoping uh, that it can become a, a docu series or, or perhaps a, a limited series uh, or maybe even a feature film. So it's early in the process, but yeah, the, the rights have been optioned by a, a, a production company. A couple of quick things. Closest musician or band that uh, newer generations can compare to the Beatles. Now, I know no one can ever – it's one, and then you're going to drop down 50 levels. I know people say Nirvana. Is that the only other band that maybe – because it changed the genre of music, Cobain's early death. uh, Mm. Any other bands can even come close to it, what the Beatles did? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to compare anything to the Beatles because they – Casey and I talk about this a lot when we're just, you know, hanging out. You know, the Beatles were only a band for like eight years and they went through so many different transitions in those eight years. They went from their mop top little like kind of doo-wop 50s pop songs to, you know, help and, and getting a little more a little more adult and grown up to Revolver to Sgt. Peppers and, all, and Abbey Road and Let It Be. And they get to all these, you know, they they grew up right before our eyes and became much more um, dynamic and they had so many more layers than, you know, everyone just thought they were a pop band in the beginning and they just evolved. So I don't think we'll ever really see anyone do that again. 
So it's hard to compare, but as far as impact on culture and society, like I think certainly Kurt Cobain had that because he, he did um, introduce the world. You know, he took heavy music out of the underground and delivered it to the masses and showed people where that angst came from. And I don't think anyone will ever do that again, the way he did. Um, you know, I think that there's been rappers that have that have had similar impacts on society. I think you know, a guy like Tupac and and Biggie Smalls. I think they their stories so visceral and, and realistic and and honest have impacted a generation certainly. And, and I think there's newer artists that that will you know go down that road as well. But it's hard. I, I think as long as music exists, there's going to be music that's going to connect with certain populations and certain generations more than others. That'll never change. But I think every generation always discovers the Beatles. I think they also always discover a guy like Jim Morrison, and they're always going to discover a guy like Kurt Cobain and, and probably like a Tupac and a Biggie Smalls if, if they're into rap. I think there's, you know, those are kind of the big folk, the big figures throughout the years that I think a lot of generations will discover. Ready to finish up with uh, five quick hit questions. Sure. You and I hanging out at a bar here in New York City. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you right back? <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to have to go with my homie, Prime Minister Pete Nice, who is from, <laughs> from third base, who's a New Yorker. Uh-huh. Um, but Pete's a good friend of mine. Uh, so, you know, I, I, we text all the time. Okay, good answer, good answer. I know you're a music and a sports guy. One sporting yep. event and one concert you wish you could have witnessed live. Oh man, sporting event. Uh well, I guess I wish I was at the uh at the 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 Patriots uh 28 to 3 because the the only Super Bowl I've ever gone to was was the um 2011 when they lost to the Giants. Um I was I'm sorry, uh, 2007. I was at the 2007 oh. one when they, the perfect season when they lost to the Giants. Uh no, I'm sorry. 2007 was not the perfect season. 11 was. I was at the 07 one in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, so I wish I was at 28 to three against the Falcons um, concert. I mean, obviously Woodstock, man, who wouldn't have wanted to be at that, you know, <laughs> last time you checked the reviews on your books. Uh, maybe the day they come out <laughs> and, and you don't, I, I don't, you don't, I don't read it? a lot of reviews. Okay, I, check, okay. I check, I check where they are on, on the, on the list. I read some of the media reviews, but I don't read a lot of the Amazon reviews because, you know, it's kind of like Yelp. Like, people yeah. can, can say whatever they want. But, but, you know, I do scroll through them occasionally, and sometimes you can tell when someone's serious and they, they love something. Or they, you know, I, I like when people give their honest opinion and they're not just trying to knock someone down. Last two, coolest piece of memorabilia you own. You go to a lot of concerts. You go to a lot of sporting events. Coolest piece of memorabilia you have. Oh, man. Uh... Wow, that's a good one. Um, I guess I would have to say my ticket stub from the uh, from Kalia Stremski's three thousandth hit. Oh, that's I a great at, one. That's a good answer. I was at that game with my dad, and I was nine years old at Fenway Park, and we, we went we went to every game that week. He was stuck on two thousand nine hundred ninety nine, <laughs> and that was the last night we were going to go. I missed school all that week to go, and I, I saved the stub. I have that. That's actually a great answer. And here we go. First time you ever saw someone reading your book, where was it and what did you do? Oh, that that's a real hard one because it's it's I see it every day online. People post it, you know, on the beach, you know, so that's kind of cool. 
Um, I don't know if I've ever seen anyone in person because COVID, I don't go anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) And my memory is foggy from pre-COVID, but I certainly um, love when people post on social media, like reading it on the beach and stuff. And we've gotten a lot of that with the Whitey book. And and I, I so appreciate it. I appreciate so much that, You've read three of my books. I mean, that means a lot, and I, I hope you read them all because we work our asses off on them. And, and like I said, and this isn't—I'm not just stroking you, man. I don't like music, and I was so all into this Lennon book, bro. You did what you guys did with this book was phenomenal. I recommended it to everybody, and I'm like, I don't like not listen. I don't not that I don't like the Beatles. When the Beatles are on, I listen to it, of course, dude. I was all in. I finished this in two days. I couldn't put it down. It was one of the best books I've read in a long time, man. And I'm an obsessive That's- reader, Dave. That's great, man. Thank you so much. It means a lot. And I'm happy to do your podcast. New York has a special place in my heart. I, I really, uh, I was at 9-11. I got sent down there that morning uh, when the second plane hit. And I spent two weeks down there. And I have a bunch of brothers that I became friends with down there that are NYPD guys. And, um, you know, without that, I wouldn't be who I am. You know, it helped me make who, make me who I am. So I I love New York. I go down as much as I can. So that's why I also don't hate the Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, this was an absolute blast. Do me a favor. Give the plug where everyone can find you, your books, and all that jazz, man. Yeah, they can you know, follow me on Twitter or Instagram. On Twitter, I'm at Dave Wedge. On Instagram, I'm at David M. Wedge. Um, and, you know, Casey and I uh, have a production company called Fort Point Media. You can find us at fortpointmedia.com and Facebook, all that stuff. And that's where you can find out all the latest on our books and our movie projects. So. And Come what, say hi, follow me, tweet at me, make fun of me, <laughs> criticize me, tell me I'm awesome, all of it. <laughs> well, you are awesome. Hey, last thing, when's the podcast coming out? Do you guys have a release date or not yet? Uh, yeah, March 15th it's going to launch, and that, that's on mudhousemedia.com. It's Mudhouse with two Ds, and um, that we, should, uh, we have a first season in the can and uh, second season starting to record, so we're super excited about that too. I'm stoked for that. Dave, this was a blast, man. Thank you so much for doing this, brother. Be careful. Yeah, thanks. Shoot me the link when it's up, and I'll promote it. I will, man. Talk soon. Thanks, brother. Take care. Bye-bye, pal.